back a couple of months ago when we commenced our journey through the book of Judges when we came to chapter 13, the start of the Samson narratives, you might remember that uh, the first chapter really wasn't much about him, it was about his mother, Zalalfonath, potentially, we don't know that was her name, but um, the Jewish, uh, Jewish traditional literature would suggest that might have been it. Zalalfonath was told um, that Samson would begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines and as we've journeyed our way through uh, up to the point where we're at today in chapter 16, Samson hasn't really kicked all that many goals in so much as um, Samson in the 20 or so years that he had led Israel accounted for around about 1,000 Philistines which doesn't compare particularly favourably to someone like Gideon does it? Who managed to knock a whole heap of others over. Not very impressive to this point. In fact, to this point, you'd have to say, as you look at Samson's life, uh, his actions have largely been self-serving, haven't they? To a large degree, uh, they have been performed to get him out of trouble, mostly trouble that was caused because of his out-of-control behaviour. Most of his out-of-control behaviour, at least in part, driven by his lust. And chapter 16 starts in rather the same sad kind of a way because we found out there in uh, chapter 16 verses 1 uh, that Samson went down to Gaza. Now Gaza was the capital city of the Philistine territory. If you think about Gaza, you know where the Gaza Strip is today across on the Mediterranean there beside Israel. Right down there with the city of Gaza, that was the, the epicentre of Philistine life and culture and Samson went to Gaza, which seems a rather bizarre thing for a leader of Israel to do. Samson went to visit a prostitute in Gaza, which was an ex extremely stupid thing to do, and was able to perform yet another one of his miraculous escapes. Got himself out of trouble, having got himself into trouble. And one of the things that we might observe as we look at the life of Samson is this, a principle that seems to be true and that is the more God blesses Samson with strength, the more reckless Samson's behaviour becomes. Have you ever thought about that? The more Samson seems to be able to do good stuff in terms of his feats of strength and daring, uh, the more reckless he becomes. In fact, if we were to chart Samson's life, you'd see an increase in that kind of pattern to the point where Samson really does seem to think he's bulletproof. And if you want to pick up the title of the song, you know, Samson's theme at this point is, I did it my way, as he carried those gates from the city of Gaza, 60 kilometres or so, to the hill there of Hebron. And one of the things, if we were just to pause here, that we might um, reflect on is the manner in which Samson's heart has used God's blessing as a reason to forget God. Now, that seems like a strange statement, doesn't it? Samson actually used God's blessing to forget God. How does that work? Well, it does sound like a rather strange thing to say, but Paul actually speaks about this in Romans chapter 1 as a warning to the church that he was writing to and perhaps as a salutary warning to church, to Christians through the ages. Let me just uh, take you to Romans chapter 1 verse 18 which says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godless, godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be made 
uh, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse in summary what Paul is saying is God has given so much so much in creation and so much of creation if you have the eyes to see it will reveal God and yet what happens is people look at creation and say wonderful blessing we don't need God we can turn away from God in fact as Paul goes on to say in verse 23 what happens is people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals God's blessings were turned against him and you see this pattern a little bit at work in the life of Samson uh, a little bit too also in the story of Gideon the more success Gideon experienced the less he re relied on God too and isn't that a commentary of our age the more success we experience the less we think we need God a Puritan minister by the name of John Flavel summed it up like this and, and listen carefully, outward gains are normally attended by inward losses. Outward gains are normally attended by inward losses, while conversely, inward gains, that is growth in things like humility, self-control and wisdom are ordinarily attached to outward losses. This is kind of back-to-front economy, isn't it? We grow deeper in God because of things that are going on that we might not like. And when everything's going well, we don't need God. And that's certainly true in Samson's life. In fact, it actually illustrates, uh, can I use this word, the juxtaposition, the, the tension between sin and grace. Because in grace, God takes our weaknesses and uses them to bring strength and blessing into our life. In sin our heart takes the blessings of God and turns them and uses them as weapons against him. It's the difference between sin and grace. And so here in uh, the story of Samson, Judges chapter 16 verses 1 through to 3, when Samson goes down to Gaza, he does it in his own way. This is Samson doing his thing. I did it my way. Samson manages to escape once again without reference to God. And then we come to verse 4, which if you want to continue to hang it on the theme, what's love got to do with it? What a, what a fantastic story. You know this story from years ago, I suspect, if you were in kids' church, right? The story of Samson and Delilah, what a classic. But I'm really, really wondering why we do some of these stories in kids' church. <laughs> because they are seriously not great examples. You know, as one who does a little bit of work with couples from time to time, this would have to be one of the most crackingly good examples of a bad relationship. You have a look at the dynamics that are going on here. This is not an example to follow, young people. This is not an example to follow, those of you who might one day get married. Delilah was clearly a very attractive young lady and probably it wouldn't be too far off the truth to say that physically the relationship between Samson and Delilah was really popping because Samson, that's where he, where he was. And I'm guessing that any director from Hollywood would look at this story and say, gosh, there's plenty of scope here to uh, spice this up, isn't there? And emphasise the more, shall we say, salubrious aspects of this relationship. But uh, we mustn't lose sight of this. Delilah was a Philistine. 
and Samson had become a major pain in the backside for the Philistines. There's probably other ways we could describe it. He was a thorn in the flesh for the Philistines. And so now, uh, his, his, the problematic nature of his existence was such that the rulers of the Philistines became engaged in the process of trying to get rid of him. And so the rulers of the Philistines came to Delilah, the Philistine, and promised her money. And let me just tell you, it was a lot of money. If you have a look there, they promised her something in the order of 1,100 shekels of silver. That's around about 13 kilograms of silver. Each of them promised 13 kilograms. I don't know how many there were. Let's say there were 10 of them. Do the math, 130 kilograms of silver. That's a lot of cash. And so Delilah, who, uh, who uh, clearly thought, hmm, this has got potential to set me up for life, decided to become an informer, a national heroine she could be if she got rid of Samson. And so she asked Samson the question, darling, what's the, what's the secret to your great strength? Now, I don't know what the dynamic was like in that space, but surely Samson must have been suspicious. You know. Why is she asking this question? What's going on here? Maybe, um, maybe that did cross his mind, but rather than leaving her, because in some respects his needs were being met in that space, I'll talk about that in a second, he lied to her. Trusting again that no matter what would happen, his great strength would overcome. And as we know from the story, she uh, tied him up with those bowstrings. He was told the Philistines were there. He broke free. Game one goes to Samson. Now, any smart person uh, would have run a mile after that, wouldn't they? But not Samson. For a second time, and then for a third time, Delilah asks what the secret is to Samson's great strength. Now, just interestingly enough here too, you notice the question, uh, the questions are asking, you know, what is the secret? There must be some magic going on here. The Philistines, as pagan people, they figured out there was always some kind of magical connection going on. You know, if we could just find the right formula, if we can just find the right strategy, if we can just pray the right prayer, if we just go through the right rituals, we'll finally crack it. What's the secret? Three times Samson said to Delilah, well this is it, three times it was shown to be uh, a lie and so uh, Samson just stays in that place. And then of course uh, we get to the place there where Samson uh, is finally uh, in a place where he confides and this is from verse 15 where Delilah says to him, she really turns up the screws, the emotional screws, do you really love me, sweetheart? Darling, you've never told me the truth. How do you think that makes me feel? If you really, really loved me, then you would tell me the truth. I've often wondered why it was that Samson didn't run away after the first time. Because surely he must have known, you know, Delilah, the, the very first time, it, well, maybe the first time it could have been a chance, you know, uh, I don't think so. But after two, after three times, Samson surely must have been thinking, something suspicious is going down here, right? Really? What was going on in this relationship? What's love got to do with it here? Well, apparently not that much. 
because if you do step back and have a look at this relationship you know God sets us up in relationship as husbands and wives and not just in husband and wife relationship but other relationships too that we might mutually submit to one another as we submit to Christ that we might serve one another but that's not going on in this relationship this is an extreme example of something that's often lived out in couple relationships uh, of two people who were actually using one another just think about this what was Samson using Delilah for well he just loved loving Uh, she was clearly giving him everything he needed in that space and Delilah was using Samson for something totally different she was using Samson to get herself a holiday house on the Gaza Strip (laughs) that's what she was looking no seriously she was she was thinking I can set myself up with all this money Samson, of course, by now is overly confident in his ability to power his way out of any danger and he appears to be classically in denial about what's going on. He is just so focused on getting his needs met that he's not prepared to accept there might be something else going on in this space. His lust is being satisfied by her body, his his love of danger and his uh, addiction perhaps to adrenaline is is just such that he's just going to stay there no matter what. And it's only when Delilah says, you know, I'm, uh, do you really, really love me? If you don't tell me, then I'm not going to love you anymore. That's triggered something for Samson. That's pushed his buttons. She was using him. And at any, uh, any time that either of them said, I am with you because I love you, what they really meant was, I am with you because you are useful to me. And they are an extreme example of a couple in relationship for the wrong reasons, but they're not Adam and Eve in that respect either, in so much as they're not the only ones who've been in that space, and we're all at risk of that to some degree, aren't we? In marriage, there's always a risk that the couple will look to the other person to provide for their emotional or even their spiritual needs in ways that only God can provide. And there's lots of wonderful things that we are able to bring into a relationship of mutual submission, but there's a point to which humans can't replace God. And Samson was happy getting all of this other stuff without his connection to God. And Unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people prosecute relationships. It might be one of the reasons relationships falter. It's not just that there's conflict or arguments over money or this or that, it's, it's that we are expecting the other person to stand in the place of God. And unless you have a relationship with God that addresses the deeper emotional needs that we all have, then expressions like, I love you, will potentially be translated like this, I need you to make me feel as if I'm worth something. I'm using you to fill a gap, a God-shaped gap. (coughs) What's love got to do with it? Well, in Samson and Delilah's case, not actually all that much. Lust, yes potential for filling their needs absolutely and so Samson as we see down here in verse 18 is finally trapped and the whole do you believe in magic things becomes really obvious because as I said before the the Philistines believed you know if we just get the formula right we'll have him we'll trap him we'll get him and in verse 18 Delilah let the Philistine rulers know that Samson had finally told her the truth. Samson's hair was gone, a bit like some folks here who lose it, and their strength was gone. His strength's not there, sorry. His strength was gone. 
They knew that the vow that he had taken as a Nazarite had been broken. It was all about the hair, so they thought. In a very strange set of events, Samson knows that he has revealed the truth to to Delilah and yet, this is the thing, he is still prepared to lay there in her lap and fall asleep. He knows, having had these three previous experiences, that in all likelihood she's going to use that information. But is he worried? No. Why not? Because he's become so reliant on his own strength. He's not even thinking about the Nazarite vow. For goodness sake, if you go back in his story, you know, he's touched a dead animal, he's broken that vow in that sense. He's been at, uh, at, at what we might call uh, colloquially boozy parties. Nazarites were not meant to touch any alcohol. He's been in that space. What does it matter if I lose my hair? I'll just do what I've done before, you know. That strength is mine and it's always going to be there. Samson believed in magic too. He'd been playing fast and loose with his Nazarite vow for quite some time and had come to believe that his strength was simply his no matter what happened. It was somehow like his right. Somehow it just belonged to him. But psychologically and theologically, Samson was deceiving himself. He'd come to believe this amazing strength that he had was his by inalienable right. It was his and it was never going to be taken away. He'd forgotten that it was actually a gift of God's grace. And of course the Philistines who were well versed in magical practice and manipulation of the gods were convinced that the hair was the problem and that his vow was broken and so now they had him. But here's the thing and this is is what we don't talk about in kids church. God's power doesn't work like that. God's power is not tied up to some kind of ritual or magic like both Samson and the Philistines believed. It depends on something internal. It depends on a heart relationship with God, not an external thing that we do. And here is an important lesson for us in the church too and and in our own lives, I think. We can easily fall into the trap of believing, you know, if I do certain things, then God will bless me, a bit like God's a vending machine, right? You know, if I read my Bible and pray and go to church, then everything will work out for me. And there's much value in establishing routines and systems, uh, 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 spiritual disciplines, but uh, external things never replace internal. And it might come as a surprise to you to hear me say this, but in Samson's case, it was never actually about the hair. Seriously. The key verse that we find in this story is not verse 19, where they have shaved off his head. It's in verse Uh, where have I got it written down here, verse 20, where he woke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as before and shake myself free, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. God had taken away the power. It wasn't about the hair. It was that God had withdrawn his anointing on him. Because God's power actually is dependent on a commitment to love and serve God and it can be worked out in our lives when we're walking in obedience and and rather bizarrely it can sometimes be worked out in our lives when we're not walking in obedience. We can't assume that it will but it can be. 
What we're meant to think uh, in this, uh, about this passage is that God's power is not dependent on a ritual or even on the ability of God's servant to act with obedience, but to recognise again that God is sovereign and God will do God's work in this space no matter what. Our God is a God of grace who pours his grace upon us even when we are unfaithful. That's a great, uh, a great statement to say again. Our God is a God of grace, a God who is faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to him. Now that's not to say that we can play fast and loose and do whatever we like. Paul talked about that in Romans 6. Shall I go on sinning so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. But God is faithful to us no matter what. And he's not bound or limited by the terms of the Nazarite vow or by Samson's hair growing back. And so one of the great mysteries of uh, the story of Samson that we finally begin to unpack is why it was that he was actually named as a luminary, as a man of faith. And we get to that in uh, verse 23. What's, uh, what's faith got to do with it here? Samson is in captivity, chained up like a spectacle and it's now and only now really that Samson exercises any sort of faith and I think that's why his strength came back. We read this passage and I can remember as a kid reading this and you know Samson was um, in, uh, in Gaza, he was bound, they set to him grinding grain verse 22 but the hair on his head began to grow again and I used to think oh this is going to be exciting isn't it you know these Philistines they're not smart enough to realize what's going on here but the Philistines were smarter than they looked they knew that the vow had been broken so the hair wasn't the issue but here Samson exercises faith and the prayer that we find in verse 28 is a prayer of humility and submission to God Samson prayed to the Lord O sovereign Lord remember me Remember me who has run after my lusts and run after my activities and run after everything to suit me and had forgotten you. Lord, remember me. That's a great prayer to pray. Remember me. And then he prays, Oh God, please strengthen me just once more. That's an amazing prayer too. Please just strengthen me once more. That actually recognises where Samson's strength comes from. He doesn't pray, Lord, let my hair grow longer so that I've got more strength. He knows that his strength actually comes from God. Lord, strengthen me one more time. A recognition that God is the one who provides Samson's strength. Samson's real sin in this passage is not so much Delilah but the belief that he'd been blessed by God with great strength because there was something inherently good about him. And it's hard to remember that what we do, we do only because of God's grace and God's grace is given so that what we do might please him. And so in Samson's life, the most important moment in his life, in fact, is his death, where at last he performs the role that he was set apart from birth to do, to begin the rescue of God's people from the Philistines. And so exercises the faith that God was looking for all along. As is the case with many stories in the Old Testament, if we look carefully enough, they actually point us towards the New Testament. And that is very true with this story of Samson. Samson 
Uh, in lots of ways, there are parallels between Samson and Jesus. In lots of ways, there are not two, I should hasten to say. But in other ways, there are. And certainly in Samson's death, there are some parallels, some foreshadowing, if you like, of the death of Jesus. And I'd like to just think about those for a few moments as we come to our communion table this morning. Samson's death had some limited impacts in that he died because of his own disobedience and his death had a limited effect in so much as it was to begin the deliverance of Israel. It didn't complete it. Uh, the Philistines weren't wiped out. But there are some parallels between the death of Samson and the death of Jesus. You might notice that both were betrayed by people that they were close to. You might notice that both were handed over to Gentile oppressors. Both Samson and Jesus were tortured and chained. Both were put on public display. Both were mocked. Both were asked to perform. Samson did, Jesus didn't. Both died with arms outstretched. Both appeared to have been struck down by their enemies and yet both in their death crushed their enemies. Samson brought the house down. Jesus brought the curtain down on the power of Satan. Bringing Satan's power to nothing. Paying the penalty of sin which means that Satan cannot legally prosecute God's people. That's a really important piece of theology. Satan has no right no grounds, no authority whatsoever to bring condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As we are redeemed by God, Satan loses the legal right that he has to accuse. And so he cannot say to you, you're mine, or your guilt is too much, or that stuff that you're guilty of or carry, it's, it's overwhelming. Satan has no legal right to do that legal right has been taken away. And it's rather curious to start uh, reflecting on this Samson narrative way back in um, chapter 13. It starts with a strong man who is shown to be consistently weak and it ends with a weak man who is stronger than he ever was before. And that's the gospel too, isn't it? Jesus became weak to become strong. And even uh, becoming a follower of Jesus is actually about giving up to gain, become weak, that we might become strong in God. Only those who are prepared to admit that I am unrighteous and undeserving are actually qualified to receive the righteousness of Christ. Only those who know that their life and strength are theirs purely because of the grace of God don't live in the grip of fear or boredom or despondency or anxiety. Only those that know their own weaknesses are able to know God-given strength, inner strength, the strength which enables us to avoid the pitfall of Samson's life, pride, lust, anger, uh, complacency. And so let me invite you this morning to come to this communion table again where we remember our Lord Jesus Christ. And as uh, we prepare for communion, perhaps a couple of things that we might take some time to reflect on. Perhaps we might take some time to reflect on the manner in which we do install other things in life as idols, people, routines, work, education, things that we allow to stand in place of God, blessings that God has given us, which we actually turn against God. 
And it's a great opportunity as we come to the table of communion to dethrone some of those and reinstall Jesus at the centre of our life and affection. And perhaps too, to be reminded in this place that any power we have, any power that comes from God is not through things that we do, not through the practices that we follow, the routines that we engage in. It comes from God who is sovereign over all to reorient ourselves to Christ. For the purposes of communion this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand, uh, come to the front, take the elements, there's some, some bread, there's a cup here, just take those, come down the centre aisle, back out the sides, back to where you are, if you sort of take notice of where you're sitting, you'll be able to find your way back to your seat, I hope, and if not, there's other seats and they're just as comfortable, so it doesn't matter. Take the bread, the reminder of the body of Christ which is given for us. Hold on to the cup that we might drink it together as a sign of our unity in Christ. This is not riveting viewing for those who are watching online. There's going to be a pause in our service while we do this because it takes a while for us to get through. But we do want to provide an opportunity for quiet reflection in this space, for some meditation, for prayer, for an opportunity to think about where God sits in our life to put Jesus back on the throne. Let's pray. And after our prayer, I invite you just to make your way quietly to come forward. Father, we want to thank you again today for the lessons that we learned from the life of someone who lived such a long time ago. Samson, who for so much of his life championed the idea of I did it my way and so, Lord, he is just like us in so many respects. Samson, who was drawn into relationship consistently to meet his needs without reference or without consideration of the needs of the other. Samson, who believed that what he had in terms of blessings from God were inalienably his. Didn't matter what he did, didn't matter how he behaved. He believed in magic. But your lesson to him was that you were above that. And Samson, who at the end of his life actually did demonstrate faith, who recognised that his strength came from you. And Lord, we sit in that place too, that everything we have, we have comes from you. And so in this moment of contemplation and reflection, Lord, today we think about your blessings that have been poured out upon us, family, relationships, security, finance, all of the things that, uh, that we take for granted in our lives. We thank you, Lord. We thank you because... In saying thanks, we acknowledge our dependency upon you. We don't take those things and turn them and use them as weapons against you to turn away from you. We acknowledge, Lord, that without you we have nothing. And as we take the elements today, we're reminded that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us what it means to be weak and yet strong. And so we take these elements with thankful hearts and offer our prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.